Our scripture reading is from Deuteronomy 30. And would you rise in honor and respect of God's word tonight or this morning as we read from Deuteronomy 30. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. Is it not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if, you, if, if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, 
that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob, to give them the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray now that as we turn our eyes to consider your word and attend unto it, that by your spirit you would attend unto us, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts, that you would draw us to see what you are saying to us, that you would orient us to hope in you, and that we would praise and glory and rejoice in Jesus, having heard your word this morning. We pray this in his name. Amen. So, um, every December when I worked with uh, Reformed University Fellowship as a campus minister, uh, I would fly out to Denver for a week of staff training. A bunch of my friends who are still in that ministry uh, probably are coming back uh, maybe today or yesterday from their, their week together. Staff training was always this wonderful time at the end of the semester that I always looked forward to, uh, being with my friends, uh, thinking about ministry, Denver is great. Uh, while I was doing that, Erin uh, would do one of her favorite things in early December, which was uh, binge watch Hallmark-style Christmas movies. So when I would get home from training, I, it's hard to express how painfully awful our Netflix suggested for you uh, list was. Um, I told Erin I was going to share this, uh, so she knows, and in her defense, uh, she will gladly admit that these are some of the worst movies ever made. Uh, Hallmark, if you didn't know this, produces about 30 movies a year. Half of them are Christmas movies, and if you've never really sat down to take one in and enjoy it, uh, let me give you a taste of what you're missing. Here are some of the common plots. Overworked child plans to skip Christmas, but gets fired and must return to his or her parents, which leads to a love connection. Big city man travels to small town Christmas place to destroy it in the name of big business, falls in love instead. Cold-hearted man hates children and or animals, but is forced to work with children and or animals, needing help from a neighbor co-worker, uh, which leads to a love connection. Person going through a bad breakup must uh, keep that breakup from their parents, which leads to them hiring someone to play their former love, which leads to a love connection. Um, now, I don't want to spend too much time trying to dig into the cultural reasons behind Hallmark, um, but I think there's something interesting about this time of year that draws us to hope. Christmas time seems to be a time of the year that brings out, even in the most cynical among us and the Scrooges among us, a greater generosity, a greater desire to give to others, to see joy in others, a greater desire for warmth and connection and relationship, a greater desire to live into joy and love and peace and hope. And for Christians, the season of Advent is meant to orient and direct us 
toward a deeper and greater hope than anything in this world. And it does this by inviting us to do two things that seem kind of like opposed to each other. Very different from Hallmark, Advent invites us to look darkness squarely in the face. In in the words of one writer, to take a fearless inventory of the darkness. The darkness in the world, as well as the darkness in us. And to grow in deep hope and expectation because God has come into this world and we have seen His faithfulness and His grace and He will come again. And so we can actually look at darkness squarely in the face and yet have this fierce hope. So it's very uh, fitting that during this season of Advent that we're in the book of Deuteronomy and in this section of Deuteronomy because Deuteronomy really does both of these things. It is radically honest about human failure and sin, the darkness in the world and the darkness in us, and yet it directs us to hope and the expectation of this God who is exceedingly more gracious and merciful than we can imagine. So, this morning, we're going to start with the bad news, the darkness, and if you don't have it in front of you, let me invite you to have the bulletin out. We're going to look through this passage together. If you've been with us in this series of Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 11 was a text we looked at about a month or so ago, and it's very similar to this passage, verses 15 and following especially. Moses is a good preacher, and so like any good preacher, he is coming back to a theme that he has already uh, spoken of, this this theme to choose life, to take hold of life. And so he's kind of hitting the call to action point in his book, his message, and so he wants to make clear to his listeners, verse 15, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments, His statutes, and His rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, you will perish. You will not have life. Verse 19 I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse, so choose life, which is to say, verse 20, take hold of God, loving Him, hearing Him, because He is life and will be your life. This is the call to Israel, choose life. And yet the tragedy is that they will choose death. And the problem, as we're told in in verse 11 through 14, the problem is not that the law is too hard or it's too complicated. It's, it's not that the law goes beyond what a human being is made for. The, the law doesn't require a, a, a superhuman being. It fits what we were made for. It points in the direction of true humanity, of fullness of humanity, of life itself, of life with God and loving God. There's not some ridiculously hard, seemingly impossible quest that's required to go and get this law and bring it back and learn it that you might do it. It's near. It's accessible. It's clear. The problem is not with the law. 
I think if we were going to boil it down, the, the problem, the most simple way to say it is, the problem is not that they can't, but that they won't. So, we've used this illustration a few times, but I think it's helpful again here. We've said a few times throughout this book, imagine someone who's close to you who's struggling with an addiction to, let's say, like drugs or alcohol or something. What do you say to that person? What, what, what do you say to the child or the friend who's addicted and yet doesn't realize the level of their problem, who's not yet hit rock bottom, who's not in that place ready to change. And I think you say things like what you see in Deuteronomy. You say things that you hope when they finally hit that place that perhaps things that you've been saying to them for years and years would finally lead them into life. And so we read in verse 1 of our passage, when all these things come upon you. This is not an if, when. This is going to happen. The things that Moses previously had just been talking about in the, in the chapters right before, chapters 27 through 29, Israel's going to break covenant. They're going to choose death. They're going to go into exile. They're going to face judgment. And this was even anticipated by those chapters. So if you were to go back in Deuteronomy chapter 27, the people come into the land, and if you remember from chapter 11, there's going to be those two mountains, and one mountain it pictures the blessing, and one mountain pictures the curse. But what's highlighted in chapter 27 is the curses. That's what's read aloud, are the curses. If you go to chapter 28, verses 1 through 14, tells of the blessings that's going to come to the people if they hear God with receptive hearts, and if they'll walk with Him. But then chapter 28, verses 15 through 68. 54 verses, more than three times the amount given to the blessing, you have the curses laid out in excruciating detail. The suffering, the pain, the confusion, the loss of what's going to happen if they turn away, if they forsake their God, if they break covenant. And while it might sound harsh, and if you've never read Deuteronomy 28, I don't know, maybe go home and read Deuteronomy 28, but gear up, like saddle up for it. I think it's one of the most hard-to-read uh, chapters in perhaps the whole Bible. What happens is just, and everybody knew it. Numerous scholars point out that the literary structure of Deuteronomy roughly follows uh, the suzerain vassal treaties of the ancient Near Eastern world. God communicates with his people in a way that's, that's understandable. They would have been familiar with these treaties and what it meant to enter into this kind of relationship. And the way these treaties worked, this suzerain vassal treaty, uh, you had a greater king who's the suzerain, and then you have a lesser king, the vassal, and the relationship is initiated usually by the greater king doing something for this lesser king. So you could imagine a, a, a scenario perhaps where, um, you know, the great king comes and saves you and your people in your village from these people who are going to conquer you. He comes and he defeats them with his army. He saves you. And so in response to what he does, you are to show gratitude and obedience and loyalty to this king. And this is all laid out in a document that made the relationship clear to the parties that are involved. And so much like 
Deuteronomy, the ancient Near Eastern suzerain vassal treaty documents, they begin with an introduction followed by a historical prologue like we see in Deuteronomy. They tell the story of what this great king has done, his goodness and his faithfulness to the vassal. And then it's followed by stipulations, various laws and things that the lesser king and the people now must do. And you can also see this in Deuteronomy, the middle section, sort of the general stipulations, chapters 5 through 11, and then chapter 12 through 26, the more specific. And then this would have been followed by blessings and curses. What happens if you obey and what happens if you rebel, which we see in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Deuteronomy is structured in this way that is so clear, and every nation living at the time of Israel would have known how this works. This is how it works. If you break covenant, you die. That's it. That's the end of you and your people. This is what happens if you break covenant. And in our modern day, though it's obviously different than the ancient Near Eastern world, we also know how relationships work. So some of us have relationships with parents or with past friends or with past spouses or with former business partners. And sometimes something can go bad in a relationship. It's hard, it's broken, but you can kind of see how, we could see how this could work out. We could see how this could be rebuilt. But then there's other times and other relationships where there has been such a trust broken that per, and, and perhaps maybe you even sought to go to that person like again and again and again and there has just been a complete unwillingness to change, an unwillingness to admit fault, an unwillingness to meet you in any real and truthful way that it is over. Or maybe there's a relationship where there has been such a treachery done where there has been such a fundamental violation of that relationship that no matter how sad it is, it is just over. Nothing can be done to put this back together. Nothing can bring this back. There's no patching it together. You you can't undo it. And this is what we should expect with Israel. This should be the end. But it's not the end. Because in the end, there is going to be grace and forgiveness and restoration. And this is the surprise of this text. What should be the end is not the end. Israel's going to choose death. And we know death is irreversible, and yet this is not the end of the story because Israel's going to be brought back from death, brought back from exile, brought back from judgment. And it's not an if it's a when. Just like it was inevitable that they're going to go into exile, it is likewise held out as a promise that they are going to return. They're going to turn back to God. God's going to turn toward them. He's going to delight in them. Look at verse 1 and following of chapter 30. And when these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. 
And even if, verse 4, you're scattered far away and it seems like returning is impossible, you're too far gone, God says, I will bring you back. I'm going to bring you back and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to prosper you and you're going to obey me and you're going to turn to me with all your heart and your soul. How? How will this happen? The people people have to turn to God, but there is a key and decisive change that we see in verse 6 where we read, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. The sign of circumcision, the sign of the covenant between Israel and God was not just meant to be this physical sign, but an inner spiritual reality there was a need, a need for the cutting off, the setting apart, the putting off of the old sinful condition and the deadness toward God. Israel needed their hearts to be circumcised because in the Bible, the heart is the control center of a person's life. Biblically, the, the heart is the organ that thinks and feels and wills. The heart has to be circumcised. And if you remember earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, God spoke of the need for Israel to circumcise their hearts because He said they are a stiff-necked people, because they're, they're like an animal that, that is stiffening its neck and is always turning in its own direction. And in Deuteronomy chapter 10, 16, the people are commanded to circumcise their hearts, to struggle to internally apply in their heart of hearts what that covenant sign symbolizes. But notice verse 6. God is the one who is now going to circumcise their hearts. The command now becomes a promise. The command now becomes a divine gift. Notice in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, why does God do this heart surgery in His people? Why will He remove that stiff-necked, resistant tendency, distrusting lifeness toward Him so that we would love God with all of our heart and our soul. And that should sound like something else we've heard in Deuteronomy, the Shema, probably the most famous passage perhaps for any Israelite, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. This is what humanity was made for. This is what life is about. This is what God commanded in chapter 6. And here we see God is going to give and enable what He commands. He's going to circumcise our hearts that we may live because He wants to give us life. And what Deuteronomy 30 says, numerous other Old Testament texts point to this reality that on the other side of exile and death and judgment and the curse and the broken covenant, there's going to be a new covenant, Jeremiah 31, that God is going to cleanse their hearts and He's going to give them a soft heart toward Him, Ezekiel 36, that God's going to bring a people who are as good as dead and give them life again. Ezekiel 37. And this is what we celebrate in Advent as we look back and remember 2,000 years ago that God is so committed to us that He comes into this world and experiences death and exile and the curse. 
that God comes into this world and He identifies with us in our sinfulness and He goes to the cross. And what is Jesus doing when He dies on the cross but facing the ultimate exile, facing the ultimate curse? Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He faces the judgment and the curse, taking the covenant curses upon Himself Colossians 2.11, Paul writes that for those who believe this circumcision of the heart happens in Christ, by Christ's substitutionary death, Jesus, as it were, is cut off for us. The old is put off and the new life, the new humanity, the new heart becomes a reality as we're united to Christ who died and raised for us. So we look back at Advent and we remember what Christ accomplished while at the same time we hope in His return when He's going to make all things new because this wonderful grace that we've just read about and considered in chapter 30, this is available to begin enjoying right now. Let me just take a minute to apply some of this. Um, If you're here this morning and you don't yet believe in Jesus, Maybe you even at times like wish you could, but it almost feels like you don't have the equipment to do it. Why not ask God to give you what you need? Why not ask? Why not turn to Him and in words, words similar to our prayers in the communion, uh, in the bulletin, say, God, if you are real, show me. God, I feel like I can't believe and trust you. Help me to turn and trust you. God calls us to believe and trust him, but this is the same God who can give you a new heart. Why not ask him? If you're here this morning as someone who believes and trusts in Jesus, what we've been considering in this passage is something we can taste and experience right now. So we've considered the new heart already, but I want us to just think about two other things that we see in these verses, the gift of repentance and the gift of obedience. And both of those words, I realize, repentance and obedience, don't, I mean, they might seem like the sweater your grandma gives you for Christmas, like, I'm not sure this is the This is the gift I want, but it's the gift that you want. Like Deuteronomy is showing us, think about this, right? In the midst of what seems broken beyond repair, in the midst of what seems like it should be hopeless, there is an open door to turn. Sometimes we get stuck, and I would imagine each of us can identify places in our life where we feel stuck. We feel stuck in the way that we relate to other people. We feel stuck in destructive ways, perhaps, of relating to friends or to our spouses or to our kids or to our coworkers or just countless other ways that situationally we can just feel stuck. And what do we see in this text but that you are never too far gone, you are never stuck beyond hope Because the circumcision of the heart enables us to a fresh turn to God, which is what repentance is. Now, it's a little bit masked in the English, but in in Hebrew, this verb that's associated in the Old Testament with repentance, this Hebrew verb shuv, is all over this passage in verses 1 through 10. So, it shows up first in the turning of the mind 
the change in how one thinks. If you look at verse 1, after it says, when all these things come upon you, there's a phrase, and you call them to mind. That's a much more, (laughs) it's a better translation to understand what it means. Literally, it's something like, and you return to your heart. But again, the heart does this rationalizing, willing thing. And so it's this idea of there is a change. There's a, there's a turning of the mind. And this turning of the mind, verse 2, leads to a turning and then a returning to the Lord. And that is met by this wonderful reality that then God turns. He turns and He restores. He turns and He shows mercy. He turns and He delights in His people again. And he turns and he blesses them. If you are a Christian, do you realize like the amazing gift it is that you can turn to this God who shows mercy? Right? James chapter 4 was a passage that I was thinking about this week in relation to this because James chapter 4 begins with James calling out the people for how worldly they are and how they are spiritual adulterers toward God. I mean, it's kind of similar to this passage in certain ways. And then James says, but God gives more grace. Draw near to God. Turn to Him, and He will draw near to you. And connected to this is obedience. Christian, you get to do what will bring you the most joy in this world and in the life to come. You get, because of Jesus and the renewed, circumcised heart, you get to love God with all of your being. You get to, by the work of the Spirit in you, you get to hear and listen to the God who made you and to live into that life and walk with Him. You can live the life of righteousness that the law was pointing to and meant to lead Israel into. You can live this because Jesus has broken the power and the penalty of sin, freeing us to being able to obey and listen and love and experience the life that God calls us to. We don't have to be stuck. We can turn and we can walk with God and love Him. I want to end by referencing a quote from St. Augustine, the theologian and philosopher who lived at the end of the 4th century and beginning of the 5th century. Augustine was a man who was converted in his adult life. He was a man who knew what it was to be ruled and pulled by desires in all sorts of different directions, a man who had previously lived his life ruled by desire and sex, ruled by ambition, ruled by success. And at one point in his famous work, The Confessions, a work about his own conversion and God's grace to him, he says this in a prayer to God, my entire hope is exclusively in your very great mercy. Grant what you command and command whatever you will grant what you command. God gives what He commands, so ask Him. Turn to Him. Ask for the ability to turn. Take hold of the life that's yours in Christ, because it's not far off. It is near. It is near in the gospel of Jesus, the one who came down and drew near to save us and give us life.